Hi there, and welcome to our first international episode. I'm Frank Nielsen, a Norwegian mind coach and founder of the non-profit nomorefair.no. For the last 12 weeks, I've been talking to Norwegian artists, race car drivers, athletes, to one of the world's best climbers, to bring stories straight to your ear so you can be inspired, motivated, and find strategies from people that have done something unique. Once or twice a month, we will have an international guest, and this is our first one, and I'm really looking forward to this one. This one is a really interesting guy. In our first episode, we had the pleasure of introducing you to a guy I had the opportunity to see at a conference in Bergen, Norway, this spring. For two years, he traveled from Alaska to Argentina along with his bike and a teddy bear. He also ran along across Australia in just 82 days, just for fun. He has tried to get to the top of the Mount Everest, but sadly, that year, tragic happened and a lot of surplus died and he couldn't reach the top. If that was enough, he has base jumped, been an investment banker, an author, and now he's an entrepreneur. Let's welcome James Bruman. Ah, thanks to, uh, thanks to be here. It's great to, uh, great to talk to you, Frank. And f- thank you, James. But first, I said in the intro that I met you in Bergen in this spring. And uh, you do some wild things, James. You're clearly a person that loves ad- loves some adventures. <laughs> I, I, I think that's I think that's probably true, Frank. Yeah, uh, that that, uh, that is definitely true. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely part of what makes life interesting for me. But I have read your book, James, from the north to south, and and in the book you start off buffing naked in the ice cold water. In the front of in the front of a bus of tourists, <laughs> and and when I read that sentence, I just thought, "Ooh, this man likes adventures." <laughs> so I'm just curious. Just before we go into rabbit hole of all your travels, I'm just curious about what what is propelling you forward to do these crazy things, like, for example, bathing naked in front of a tourist bus. Bus. <laughs> that one's uh, that was a little unusual. I think a lot of it for me is about trying to experience as many things that are out there to experience. Um, some are really was going to a nice restaurant, and, and other things are more difficult, like some of the, the travels that I've done and and, and jumping into the the Arctic Ocean. Um, on that story, um, the reason I did it naked was that uh, right in the north of Alaska, where I, I started this bicycle trip. Um, you, you can't just walk up to the coast because they have all these oil rigs and installations there. So you have to take this little tour bus that goes out there. And um, we're on the bus and we're driving out to the little coast. And the uh, the beautiful blonde girl that was doing the tour uh, <laughs> said, oh, if anybody wants to go swimming in the ocean when you get there, then we can do that. And uh, I, I realized it's the one day I've forgotten to wear any underwear. So I was like, well... <laughs> Yes, if I'm going to do it, I'm really going to do it. So, but yeah, I was there, right? So I was like, well, I'm not going to let this opportunity go. So yeah, that I was there walking out over the ice, uh, not wearing anything. But um, yeah, was, I'm glad I did it. It was, a, it was a great experience for me. I'm not sure it was such a great experience for everybody else watching. But um, but yeah, that's just kind of how I, I like to kind of live live life. And you know, some of these things are, are wonderful experiences, and, and some are terrible, but they're all unique. And I guess that has been part of my philosophy for, for trying to live life so far. But is that all this all about, James? This, this, uh, ex- I can't say extreme, but in your book, you say that uh, you can, <laughs> when you're traveling with your bicycle, you can see the whispers, if that is the right word for it, on the bear eating some flowers <laughs> just in front of your bike. 
And I thought that's like extreme. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, is, that, I think is it, it just it, normal for you? It, it's kind of part of it. Um, I mean, that's one thing I do like about the, these kind of travels where you just set off with half a plan and just see what happens because you never quite know what's going to happen. And sometimes it's amazing and sometimes it's terrible. And the amazing things are amazing and the terrible things make great stories at the end of it. <laughs> so as long as you get in this, in the mindset that whatever happens, you can, you can come out the other side, right? You, you know, it's going to work out. Okay. I didn't get eaten by a bear and I didn't expect to. So as long as you believe that you're, you're not going to drown in the Arctic ocean or get eaten by a bear, then you're always willing to open yourself up to these experiences. So So part of that is, is how that enables me to do it. I think as well, it's, it's the experience, but it's also trying to test myself a little bit perhaps and see what my limits are and, and really kind of see what I'm capable of. I think that's also something that's driven me a lot over, over my life as well, is really to sort of push myself and be the best me that I can be. Um, and I know that drives a lot of people. Um, and it certainly does for me. I just trying to wrap it in an interesting adventure. What, what I'm doing. So. <laughs> and I'm so glad you do that, James. But in your book, yeah, you say that um, you tell the story about uh, camping, and uh, this black van is coming. It has no plates and it has tinted windows. And outside comes this uh, guy in a military job. Uh, That's right. Yeah, and black boots. <laughs> and I remember from the book that you think, oh, whoa, 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 this is going to get interesting. And in that moment, James, what did you really think about? Because you come, you at, the, at that time, you had to travel from Alaska, mainly alone, and now you're yep. camping by by the road, and this black van is coming, is coming with this tinted window and this, yeah, this military man. <laughs> yeah, it sounds it, straight out of a movie. It, it, it is, and it was, and you know that's part of the the interesting thing I, I, I mentioned just then that yeah you, know, you, you you have some experiences that are amazing and some that are terrible, and as long as you open yourself up to being open to these experiences, you never quite know what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, for example, in, in and you meet some amazing people as well, which is <laughs> part part of it. And uh, as I'm, I say, you, you meet the angels and the demons, and you never quite know whether the person you're talking to is one or the other. Um, this was a great example, so. Um, I was in uh, Montana in the middle of nowhere and a, a huge storm was coming and there's nowhere to camp at the side of the road. So I pulled into one of these RV parks in, in the middle of nowhere and uh, sort of set up a, a tent there. And as I'm sitting in this little bench, as the lightning's coming down, the rain's coming down, this, this van you mentioned pulls in and it was like you see in these sort of CIA movies, a completely blacked out van, um, sort of pulls up, stops, everything goes silent. And this guy jumps out and he's all dressed in army fatigues and he comes and sits down opposite me in this table and he puts a light on the table. So now there's two of us with this sort of eerie glow of the light with the storm in the background. It was just like you see in the movies and you just think, oh, okay, that's it. I'm, you know, I'm for the chop now, especially when he took out this, this 12 inch knife and started <laughs> drawing on the table with it right in front of me. Um, and he, we got talking, and it turned out that he was a conspiracy theorist. So he thought that the world was going to end, and there were all these signs that you know nuclear annihilation was coming, and he was trying to escape from the East Coast because that was going to be first. And we talked about all these other things like JFK and the Iraq War for stealing oil. And, and on the face of it, you thought this guy would have been absolutely you know bonkers, and he, I guess he kind of was. But at the same time, he, he was quite a nice guy. 
And we had a good chat. And after about an hour or so, he sort of got up and said, oh, and I'm see you tomorrow and just left me the lamp so I could continue reading and got back in his van and never heard of him again. So um, you meet these very interesting characters and that, that's definitely been a theme through my travels. Um, I, I think it's important that you, you sort of take it as face value and realize that not everybody is waiting around the corner about to jump on you and take all your stuff. You know, there's some, but do you ever, even though their appearance might see that way. Yeah, but do you ever think about that, James? Because for the people that haven't read your book, you set out on an adventure. And if you can tell a little bit of that story, James, because you don't plan that much. This isn't the 10 years in the planning. Right, right. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I'm trying to get better at that, I'll be honest. Um, but yeah, at least the, the early adventures and, and this bicycle trip was a good example where I'd worked in banking for a couple of years and uh, I needed a break. And basically, I, I just wanted to go and have a nice holiday for a while. And a while being a year or two. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'd done some backpacking before. So I thought, well, I could do that again. could just put the backpack on and go traveling. But it's a bit hard sell when I get back from my travels, uh, try and get a job. And what did you do for two years? Well, I sat on the beach. It's a hard story. So I'd read uh, a book called Into Thin Air, which I'm sure many of people listening have read, uh, about uh, the disaster on, on Mount Everest in 1996. Um, there's a bit in the book where the author John Krakow talked about a, another chap, Goran Krupp, I think uh, the name is, if I'm Jöran saying it Krupp, right. Norsk, yeah. There you go. <laughs> he's per- Swedish. He's Swedish. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And he'd actually ridden a bicycle from Sweden to Mount Everest, climbed Mount Everest and, and rode a bicycle back, an, an amazing feat. And a page or two in this book just talked about some of the adventures he'd had on his bicycle on the way to Everest. And I thought, wow, this is this is a really good idea. I can basically go backpacking, but I also have this theme, this story that I can tell. And also it's it's the next level. It's something different. You're not just going from tourist destination to tourist destination. You're really seeing each country and the, the intricacies of it and meeting these interesting people that you never otherwise would. So literally my training was I cycled to work and back for three days a week for three weeks. And it was <laughs> about five kilometers in each direction. So not a great deal of training. And yeah, I flew to Alaska, bought a bicycle, flew to the north coast of Alaska, got on the bicycle and, and, and off I set for, for two years. And you just have the assumption it's just going to work out fine. <laughs> and mostly it did. Mostly it did. Yeah. And you brought a teddy bear and you got a, <laughs> that's also a story. And- I did. Yeah. I brought a, brought a teddy bear mascot, which is a whole story in itself. Yeah. Yeah. The reason for it, James, you said it's a little, little bit, little bit quick here because I read your books, so I know it, and it was because you were tired of banking, and you needed a holiday. Yeah. And to get this holiday, you thought, ah, a year or two, very interesting story on, on the way. <laughs> but I'm still curious. We're talking about two years alone on a bicycle from Alaska to Argentina. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's um, uh, what, like everything. What, what was the, what was the what was the what was the thought behind it? The thought behind was it? Oh no, I'm going to enjoy the life for two years, or was it? Oh, I'm not going to struggle for two years. <laughs> what was the thought behind it when you planned this two year trip? I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think in terms of doing it on my own, it was partly because I didn't really find anybody 
my friends that wanted to come with me for two years. Great to know. And, and I did meet a lot of people on the way in certain places. So Alaska, there's lots of cyclists around in the summer. But then there was probably 15 months where I didn't see a, another cyclist at all. But I think at that point, I, you get used to some of the aspects like not talking to anybody for five days. And that can be really difficult. How but is it not talking to anybody for five it, days hard. and struggling at the same time? Yeah, that's the problem. If if things are pretty bad, I was in Canada and it was raining without stop for five days. So everything you own gets wet and then everything goes moldy. So you're you're cycling in moldy clothes in the rain and you've got another day at least of this and there's nobody to talk to and it's just, just horrible. And the the difficulty with that is that you you start playing things in your mind and you start playing them over and over again. And it's very easy to get in this spiral of almost depression where it just makes you angrier and angrier and angrier. And there's nothing to jog you out of that. So I, I find that would happen occasionally. Remember, um, remember one episode that is. Yeah. Really yeah. And, uh, in, in Mexico, actually, there's a very long piece of, of Mexico across the Yucatan Peninsula before you get to the coast. And I just remember cycling on there and it was it was something my boss had said to me two years before that I've, I've completely forgotten what it was now. And I remember getting so angry uh, at this incident years before. Um, I, I just remember that moment of cycling through this beautiful paradise sunshine just absolutely in a rage over nothing. And it's because the littlest thing just ended up spiraled down and down and down. But it's um, but you learn to deal with that, and, and towards the end of the trip, it, it didn't really happen. You'd sort of recognise the signs, or well, hold on, hang on a minute, I'm starting to get angry over nothing, and then you would just take some deep breaths and look at the sunshine and and try and find something to snap yourself out of it. So, learning how to deal with these kind of things, especially when it was really difficult and just miserable, that that was that was something I learned. But again, something I had no idea was going to happen before i left mm. i sort of set off in this idyllic it'll be perfect and then you deal with these problems as they arise has this helped you in life after uh, james because you're on, now you're an entrepreneur and as we know there's new obstacles <laughs> yes exactly it, it definitely has it definitely has i think it's there, there are lots of lots of things i mean and you're an expert in this frank and I, i think there are certain things when you go through an experience and you you learn from it especially when it's about overcoming difficulty and and suffering and you do learn to deal with it and to recognize the signs so you can stop it getting any worse in periods just as i explained but i mean but, i certainly but, find but, being an on but was the signs you recognized uh, james if i can ask that yeah i mean so for example on that one it was very much when you start you realize that you're just thinking about the same negative thing over and over again and you're on a loop and Before I never recognized that and you go deeper and deeper into this loop. But now I realize if I'm walking along the street and I'm thinking about something that went wrong yesterday and I realize I'm thinking about it three times in a row and there's nothing to, there's no solution there. There's no result. It's just this on a record. Now I'm like, whoa, okay, I know, I know what's happening now and I can take a step back and try and think about something else. And that's maybe the tricky thing because like you said, it was five days without talking to anyone. So you haven't had any external circumstances that took away from the thinking. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Like in exactly. daily, like in daily life, 
your, your girlfriend or a co-worker or whatever it is, they come and talk to you. So they get out, they get us out of this thinking pattern. That's exact. That's exactly it. So <laughs> but, you but find it alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, there's nothing to jog you out. And mm. even I find it now if I'm you know walking home from work and it's a 45 minute walk. Uh, you know, we all do this occasionally, right? And you go know, for a walk in the forest and. Even if you're alone for a couple of hours, you, it's easy to get into this. So, um, but this is just one example of, of these things. You did, I didn't realize it was going to happen. And, but the experience has definitely helped me over, to manage some of the, the difficulties in being an entrepreneur, which is, I find a, a really, really tough gig. It's just a hard, hard way to, to make a living. It has its amazing points, but it is, it is a lot harder than doing your, your nine to five job for sure. <laughs> it's tough, but I've still, more curious about your trip james because it's two years and i know that it's a while since you had this trip so i presume that your memories are a little bit more back in back in your mind at the moment in- um some, sometimes you know some things are like it was yesterday and other things uh, i completely forget huge sections but what is like yesterday james what are some memories as like yesterday um, from that trip it's interesting you know it's, it's like remembering that birthday you had when you were 15 and you don't remember your 14th birthday and you don't remember your 16th birthday, but something will happen on that 15th that you remember it, for example. Um, or some episodes yeah, to remember. Well, so, you know, on my, I'm in the trip. There's lots of things. I remember the moment that van pulled up like it was yesterday. I could describe everything about everything. Um, there's lots of these little moments, you know, people you meet and you can just describe you know, almost the shirt the guy was wearing. Um, there, there's one, there's one thing. There's one thing I remember from the book, James. Um, I, I presume you remember it as well. And that was uh, uh, a guy. Uh, I think he's, uh, I think he moved from uh, the US to Canada. And when yes. you were sitting in front of his porch, a tree fell down. Yeah, exactly. I, I, that, 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 that was, yeah, that was, that was the guy's shirt. I remember. <laughs> um, yeah. His name was Dennis. Um, wonderful chap, actually. A uh, really amazing chap, actually. Yeah. He, he was a dairy farmer in Illinois. In, in the US and he moved to the absolute middle of nowhere in Canada to open up this um almost like an RV park. Fabulous guy. Uh I was cycling along as a storm and all the trees were blowing everywhere and I just needed a break because I was going into the headwind. So I pulled into this little area because I saw a picnic table there and I was like, well maybe they won't mind if I just sit here and you know have a sandwich rather than sitting in the wet grass. Um but yeah so I'm sitting at the picnic table and the, the house is fifty meters away or thirty meters and this guy kind of comes out and walks over and super nice guy. We have a great chat. And while we're talking, literally this enormous pine tree just falls over in the wind and lands right in this guy's house, like 30 meters away. <laughs> um, but he was an amazing guy. He literally stood up, said, Oh, I'll be back in a minute. Walked off to the house. And it took him about 10 minutes to take the tree off with his forklift truck, lay it down, chop all the branches off with a chainsaw cut it up into logs and then stack the logs up by his house. <laughs> Swear to God, 10 minutes. It was, and he gets back and it's like nothing had happened. <laughs> Amazing guy. So, um, just, yeah, another, you, you just mean, another day. Just another day for him, I guess up there. Um, but I certainly remember that. And it was, it was a wonderful experience there because it was a Friday night and a lot of his friends came up. Um, and I actually, I, I set off down the road. I, I cycled about 30 kilometers, realized I'd left my bicycle helmet back on that table so i had to turn around and cycle another 30 kilometers back because i realized that my if i told my mother that i'd lost my bicycle helmet she would have been really really upset <laughs> so i was like well i gotta go get it back 
Um, but yeah, ended up staying there um, the night and all his friends came up and the storm passed and I saw the northern lights and we got a campfire and it was it was just an amazing experience. One of those that I remember like it was yesterday. Um, so it's amazing when you go to these things and you just throw yourself out there. It's amazing the experiences that you have at complete random. But two two years, James, that's almost 700, over 700 days. Yeah. And 700 days of experience. Yeah, I was I was ready to come back. Uh, I think when I originally set out, so you have to, the problem is going from Alaska to Argentina is you have to go from the summer to the summer because you can't cycle in the Arctic in the middle of winter. Um, and the same in Patagonia, the weather's bad enough in the summer. And because of the seasons are different, you, you either have to take six months or 18 months, you know, a year and a half. And I stretched the ends a little bit. So that's why it took about two years. But I think for the last six months, I, I was ready to come back. Um, again, it's a psychological thing. We talked a little bit about, you know, I had a, a map of the world. And on my trip, I took the long way around South America. So rather than going down the Andes, I went through Venezuela, through the Amazon rainforest to Manaus in Brazil, and then along the Amazon River, and then all the way around the coast of Brazil. And what I found was that when I got to that corner of Brazil, where you stop going across and start going south, you sort of think, oh, brilliant, I'm, I'm on that last stretch. I'm almost there. But almost there was still another 10,000 kilometers. <laughs> in my mind, I, I sort of said, okay, I'm on the home stretch. So your brain was almost ready to finish, except that lasted another seven or eight or nine months. And, and that became quite difficult because your brain's expecting you to be finished and you're not. So the, the last couple of months were, were definitely difficult in terms of, you know, I was kind of sick of getting on a bicycle at that point. How, how did you deal with that, James? Because I, I think that a lot of people experience this every day, especially founders or entrepreneurs yeah. or whatever it is. They think that, oh, we have to get to, to get to the target or we have to reach our goal. Or if you visualize a lot, we think, oh, I have to reach my goal soon. And we get more frustrated. Every day we get frustrated because we can't reach our goals. And now I'm curious... How did you deal with it? Because, like you said, it's 10,000 kilometers left. Yeah. That's yeah, a long know, way. It's, it's a great example that you bring up there. And I think being a founder is even more difficult because it never really ends. You get to the one target and then there's the next thing to do and the next thing to do. But I think for me, it was really a case of you've come so far and it's very easy for us to forget how far we've come in whatever endeavor we're doing because – you just think, oh, well, I did it, so it can't have been that hard. But when you take a step back, there's there's a lot of things that all of us have done. We had to go to high school. We had to graduate high school. We had to go to college. We had to get the first job. And the list goes on and on. And when you're sitting at home thinking about these things, it feels like you, you know today is the start of something. But it really isn't. There's this enormous list of amazing things that everybody has done to get to where they are. The bike trip is just a more visible version of that because you have an absolute start and an absolute finish and that's the reason i was curious because like you said <laughs> it's a visualize uh, yeah. but like i said it was six months and you were, you were so sick and tired and yeah and I'm, and i'm curious about the strategy you used to get on this bike every day every 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 day <laughs> and, and that exact comes back to that point of looking how far we've come because if you think i'm just you wake up in the morning and you only look at the 10,000 kilometers, then you think, I've got such a long way to go. And it gets very demoralizing. 
Um, whereas if you look back and you say, okay, I've come 15,000 kilometers and I've got 10,000 to go, well, I'm two thirds of the way there. And then you start thinking, well, I can make it now. Look at what of all I've done. And I've got this bit to go, but I can do it because look at what I've done before. And then you realize that if you quit now, look at all the, you know, that feeling of failure that you, yeah, you've done a lot, but you could have made it because you've come so far already. Mm. And and that feeling to take that just next step, um, I think it pushed me on a lot. And that's one great thing about the bicycle trip is that you know that every single kilometer that you go is exactly one kilometer closer to the end because it's that finite goal. So you know that even if you have to crawl on your hands and knees, you will get there in the end. And that, that's something I find entrepreneurship is a little bit different because um, you don't quite know if you're going down the right path. So it's even more difficult. But there's, I think the strategy was really you know you did it yesterday, so you know you can do it today, no matter if everything hurts, it's okay. And then you know that every step you're going to take is going to take you one step closer to your goal, no matter what. So that gives you that that hope that you're going to do it. And I think the final thing as well is that um, you realize that, sure, the weather's terrible now and I'm really tired and, oh my goodness, the last four days have been awful. But you know that perhaps today, this is the day I... I meet a dentist and see a tree collapse in somebody's house or I meet some amazing person that I never otherwise would meet or, or something incredible is going to happen or I'm going to see some amazing thing. And, and just knowing that if you just lay in your tent at night and, and don't do anything or in your bed in the morning, it's not going to happen. So it gives you that hope again. So I think a lot of it comes down to the hope and the, the, the knowledge that you're going to get somewhere. And I think that, that really helped me get through those last difficult few months. Uh, how was it to travel through uh, the Amazon jungle and, and Brazil? Both of them are pretty poor places. Uh, so, how was it to travel on the bicycle? On the, yeah, it's, on the, on it's uh, well, the Amazon rainforest, which I realised when I got there, was it's very uh, hilly, so it's a lot more difficult <laughs> than a bicycle than I thought. I thought it was going to be flat, right? But no, um, no, it was it was, it was fine actually. Um, I found the people there be very, they, they were great people. Um, one example I kind of mentioned to people that you sort of think Brazil's super dangerous, you have to be very careful. But I would pull up to a little cafe in a tiny little village in the middle of nowhere and I would leave my bicycle outside the cafe and I'll go in there and I'd just sit there for an hour, just sort of have a cup of coffee, maybe chat to a couple of people, not looking at my bicycle, not looking at any of my stuff, just leave it outside. And in six months, nothing went missing. Nobody tried to steal it, nothing. And you sort of, it's very easy to get into this mindset and we see in the media that everybody's out there to steal your stuff and it's all going to go wrong, but not once in six months. Now, sure, I'm, I was lucky, but, um, but it, it does give you this faith in humanity that, um, you know, that most people are not waiting on a street corner to do bad things to you. And in fact, there's more people waiting on the street corner to help you um, <laughs> than, than yeah. are doing bad things. So I actually found it a, a quite uplifting experience to, to go through Brazil. It was, um, it's very dangerous to cycle there. I wouldn't recommend that it's for a bunch of reasons. But um, yeah, I mean, that was that was scary in that sense. But um, in a lot of other ways, it was actually quite a quite a wonderful place to go to. You said something about the fear of failure, James. Was it the fear? Yeah. Was it the fear of failure that uh, drove you to travel all these days? It was over seven hundred days, and from reading your book, I understand that if you first kilometers, you went flying over the handlebars yeah 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 it was i mean it was a tough start right it was so I, i fell off twice in the first 31 miles so i um 
I mean, I, I slashed my hand really badly. So it was, it was bleeding for a month. It was pretty bad. And, um, and then in the first eight days, I lost eight kilos of body weight. And I'm, I'm quite a small guy to start with. So <laughs> I was in, uh, I was in a lot of pain and suffering, but, um, yeah, you sort of, you, you sort of think, well, you know, can I make it? The, the, the two, and, and for me, everybody's driven by different things, right? I think, but for me, a big thing is, is that fear of failure in a way. Um, but in a positive way to sort of drive you on and do something to get you through the hard times, right? Because mm. a lot of us have this fear of failure of things. And I do too. It just depends on what the thing is that stops us trying. And that's a real negative. But if the fear of failure keeps you going to the end, then that's a positive thing. So it's about using it. So the, the example I, I give on that was that when I left, I had a little kind of going away thing in, in, in one of the bars in London. And one of my best friends were there and he was running around going, oh my God, my friend, he's going to ride a bicycle from Alaska to Argentina. And I just remember thinking, well, I can't go home now because, you know, that's, what's he going to think? Um, and you know, I did it for me at the end of the day, but there are those hard moments where you think, okay, do I, do I want to go home? Because you know that, yeah, it hurts now, but I know in myself that I would look back every day and think, I gave up. I, it wasn't that bad. You know, I could have got through it, but I didn't. And that for me is infinitely more painful. Those feelings of regret than going through another day of hammering rain or, you know, feeling super low because you've only eaten one cliff bar and cycled 80 miles on it. Yeah, that really, really sucks. But you know that looking back, I'd much rather have that peace of mind that, yeah, I gave it everything. And yeah, sometimes it doesn't work out, but it's amazing what you can do if you just try and do that one extra step. Uh, and that was always the philosophy that I used. I got to say something from your book, James. Because I think you've forgotten some of this. I'm going to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It had been 20,675,000 miles since the frozen southern Arctic Ocean. During which time I had been starved, chronically dehydrated, robbed, frozen, been rescued twice from forest fires, accidentally set myself on fire, and almost drowned. I I had also become lost in several deserts, been stung, bitten, psychologically traumatized, and taken hostage by an Amazonian tribe, to name some of the interesting challenges. Yeah, yes. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And from what you're telling me now, it sounds like a walk in the park. But can you please tell me about the forest fire? And how you set yourself on fire? (laughs) <laughs> yeah well so the same myself on fire one. so yes I, I there's there's a lot of things bad things you know in quotes bad um that happened interesting things interesting <laughs> things i mean yeah they were bad at the time and scary or or whatever but you know i look back and they, they make great stories and i don't think there was ever a time when i thought oh i'm in such trouble now i can't get myself out of it so all the moment before, forest fire didn't think oh no i'm screwed well by the time I, well, I'll tell you the story on the forest fire. So, um, I was cycling through Southern California and, um, I pulled up at this state park and I said, Oh, Brent, I'd love to camp here. And they're like, well, you can't because there's, uh, the fire is coming. And somebody else had, had, had pulled me over at the side of the road earlier in the day and asked me about, is the fire there? And I looked out in this perfect blue sky and I was like, guys, uh, no, not here. So again, this, this person said, the fire's coming. I look up, there's no fire. And I was like, okay, well. Something, somebody's Idiot. gone crazy. <laughs> yeah, I just assumed that, I don't know, there's some paranoia going on there. So I, I cycled for another few kilometers 
um, down the road and there was this, in this narrow valley and I found a little area in the grass way across, over from the road near the trees that I thought, oh, I could put my tent up here. I was super tired. So, so I did that. I put my green tent up in the green grass way off the road near the trees, really hard to find, and just went to sleep. And uh, about 10 o'clock in the evening, it was all dark, and suddenly I saw this sort of this flashlight going across the tent and this voice saying, ah, oh, police, police, uh, you know, who's there? And it turned out that one of the police had just randomly driven past and, and seen my tent, which is impossible, and come over and stopped and, and investigate. And he was quite nice about it. And he was like, well, look, you're not supposed to be here, but you're here now. And at least I know you're there now because of the forest fires. And I was like, okay, fine, whatever, forest fire. So he went off and I went back to sleep. And about three o'clock in the morning, he came back and said, okay, you're going to have to evacuate because the fire's coming this way. And uh, I thought he was joking. So um, he drove off and I just went back to sleep again. I thought, oh, I, I just thought, oh, he's just doing this just because he's got nothing to do and he'll just wake up this person who's not supposed to be here, you know, get me back. But eventually I woke back up again, probably like 10 minutes later. And I was like, oh, I guess I'd better at least get out of my tent because he's going to come back. And it's very cold. It's right in the sort of in the, I guess, near the desert. So it's quite cold. Anyway, so I got out of my sleeping bag, unzipped my tent and I opened the, the tent door. And I just saw the hillside right in front of me, and the entire top of the hillside was completely on fire. Um, not that far away. So, yeah, I, I uh, packed all my stuff up super quick just as he pulled up, and we threw my bicycle in the tent in the, in the truck. And uh, he sort of drove me along the road for about 20 miles down to the actual desert and the, the motorway there. And, and we're in the truck, and it's probably 4 o'clock in the morning. And it was saying, and then the police radio saying, well, you know, make sure you get everybody out of the area because the fire is going to come right across that road at about 6.30 in the morning, they thought. And I, I looked down and realized I'd set my alarm clock for 7 a.m. in the morning. So <laughs> if he hadn't have come and got me, I'd have totally been in my tent when this fire came through. And, you know, these things just, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. You could feel the heat of the fire from hundreds of meters away. You could literally wind the window down of the truck and put your hand sort of up near where the window was and you could feel the heat. Just like you feel from a, you know, a grill or a barbecue, but from hundreds of meters away, it was unbelievable. Um, and then you got to the freeway, and there's thousands of people there that they had to get evacuated, and their cars were filled up with you know, picture frames, and that's all they had. And it, it was kind of a really raw moment to, to see all these people that had literally just lost everything. Um, and you're sitting there going, "Well, I was super lucky, but compared to these people, you know, I've just had a little adventure compared to you know some of the really bad things." And it, it was kind of an incredible sort of very sad but quite amazing thing to witness because you know, everybody was very kind of they were very strong comforting each other and there's a lot of kind of humanity there um but yeah i was very lucky that the guy had seen me otherwise i'd totally been burnt to a crisp but so you um had a, you had a guardian angel then uh, a little bit of guardian angel i think i've used up all my nine lives at this point um <laughs> have you experienced yeah, that? So, have, you, have you experienced that before uh in, in what way that's uh, like now we had you can say the guardian angel or it just was a coincidence but uh, have you experienced this coincidence before that uh, somebody comes in uh, and saves your life on this um, on these experiences adventures yeah just trying to think like um i've definitely had some very very close calls where it should have gone horribly wrong and it didn't um you know i, I fell in a crevasse in the himalayas you fell in uh, what we- in a in a crevasse, so where the glacier splits, you get these really deep holes in the ice. Okay, and um, 
we I, I did an enormous um like a 160 kilometer trek in in Pakistan when I was in university um with some some friends of mine and it's amazing you walk up one enormous glacier in the Himalayas sort of cross the top of it and then there's another glacier you walk down and we'd uh, we'd unroped um because it was quote unquote safe <laughs> um and then about probably 50 meters further on I, I fell in into this crevasse but very luckily it was covered in snow and luckily I'd fallen in, but only up to my arms. So my feet are literally dangling in thin air um, and I'm just held there with my arms. And I mean, it should have broken and I should have fallen into this crevasse and it was hundreds of meters deep. It was a big, big crevasse. But yeah, they threw me the rope and hauled me out and I looked down into it thinking, well, that's, that was quite lucky. Yeah, I believe so, um, I believe you, James. No I know that you had base jump to try to get to the, Mount, the top of Mount Everest. And you, yep. you have done some amazing stuff. But I'm not finished with the ride just yet. I'm still curious <laughs> because now you're getting to the end of it. Yes. And how was it to feel? And how was the feeling at the end when you're you finally got there after 700 days yeah how, it was, how was, it was that amazing. feeling it was amazing i mean <laughs> i remember there's a car park right at the bottom and i remember about a mile before i got to the car park that one of my friends had told me that i needed to do a really big skid on my bike at the end so <laughs> i did that and then yeah you walk out onto this this boardwalk they've got and look out and then that is it there is no more path there is no more road um, yeah, it was, it was really emotional. I didn't think I was going to have that much emotion because you spent the last six months visualizing being at the end, but at the same time, it, it really does hit you. I mean, I, I was, I, I mean, I cried. There's nothing you could do about that. Um, yeah, it was just an amazing release just to know that you'd actually finally done it. Um, what was the feeling? Was the feeling of accomplishment or what was yeah, actually the feeling of it? I'm curious. Yeah, I think, I think it really was. The, it was just a feeling of. Yeah, it's it's hard to describe what the feeling was. It was almost just like like an emotional release. But trying to tell you what that emotion was was difficult. Um I was, it was happiness, you know, that I'd actually done it. It was um a sense of achievement and pride and hey, you know, I I've come through all these difficulties and I'm actually here. Um I know I was I was, I was very happy, but I was crying. But I was also very happy, and then you also sort of think, "Well, what next?" <laughs> um, so now <laughs> you have, well, you know, it's like it is really like a a life point. Um, was this also yeah, it's one of those anticlimax, or no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, that was definitely a real climactic moment. Mm. It was it was an anticlimax, you know, riding the bicycle back to you know the town, and then you sort of think, "Well, okay, that's that's one big part of my life over now. The thing I've been striving for for two years is now done. Because yeah. there is something, that, if you're struggling a lot, and you had been struggling for two years, or, yeah, it's a great adventure, but it's it's a struggle if you have to yeah. travel with a bicycle. It's, tr- it's struggling. And the reason I'm asking if it's an anticlimax is that when you finally reach your target after so much struggle, sometimes you can have a... Uh, image or a feeling is that it's going to be perfect. It's going to be some, yeah, some, some big thing about it. Yeah, and when you finally reach that goal, is it's just another day. 
you're, yeah, you're no, absolutely. Targets, but it's, it's just another exactly. And I know, I know exactly what you mean. I and I've had, I've had times like that. I remember graduating from business school, and you know, that's a, it's a, it's a tough road, and as you know, you do a ton of work, and it's, it's quite stressful. And yeah, it was, it just, just bounced right off me. It was just such an anticlimax. You're like, okay, now I have a piece of paper that's got, you know, a few words on it to say I've done it, and and it, it just felt like another day. But this trip, I think, was different because I think I'd had. You know, such a set of physical challenges, but very kind of emotional challenges. You know, it was really much a, you really felt the, felt the emotion of the difficulty. It wasn't, oh, now I've got to work till three in the morning and it kind of sucks. It was more, oh, I, you know, I've had to ride a bicycle through the rain up a mountain and I got to do it again. And so I, that was definitely, it was definitely a climax. I definitely really felt that surge of emotion. But yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean, and it's, it's very unusual that sometimes you think it's going to be an amazing climax, and there isn't. And then sometimes you get super emotional about something, even when you don't expect it. But uh, you never quite know which one's going to happen. <laughs> but certainly for that, it was uh, it was it was definitely a, an emotional moment, and I was I was quite quite happy I was done. <laughs> and and <laughs> I went across the f- the finish line. You thought, oh, what's next? And then you take some uh, years off and uh, get bored <laughs> and you find out ah oh, i'm going to run across australia then yeah yeah exactly yeah so yeah i mean i've, I've done a few of these adventures i i think it's become the thing that you know, i sort of almost turn to when i don't know what i'm doing with life i've never been a very good person for having that 50-year plan of you know get the house and the mortgage and the kids and the the job and all that kind of thing um i don't know whether it's my quest for experiences and just maximizing life um, there's just always been other things that I wanted. Um, and now I think turning to adventures has, has always been, you know, a way to clear my, clear my, clear my head, especially these long ones where you're on your own a little bit. It does, does give you some time to think. So yeah, so I, I came back from the bike trip. I, I worked for a couple of years. I went to business school, went and worked another couple of years in banking. Um, and then I needed to decide what I'm going to do next. So I didn't want to do banking anymore. For many, many reasons, I'm not going to go into. <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, the the Australia thing that was that was an interesting one. So I was I was back actually staying with my parents, which is always an interesting concept when you're in your in your thirties. <laughs> you, know, you kind of think, oh, I love staying with mum, dad, but at the same time, you it does feel like you've gone back twenty years. So it's um, it's an interesting interesting concept. But anyway, I, I was just staying there trying to figure out what to do next, and um. I thought oh, I need some space here and the weather was terrible in England in November and I was like, Oh, this is awful. I need to go somewhere sunny. So um I hadn't been to Australia, it'd been on my list for a long time and so I decided to go. And the backstory to that was that I was trying to avoid getting a job when I was at business school. So um I came up with the idea of running across Australia rather than getting an internship, so that's <laughs> way more interesting. Um and I never ended up doing it because I actually ended up going uh, quite interesting little summer job in, in California. So I thought, oh, it'd be fun. But yeah, so I, I went to Australia. And I was like, oh, well, if I'm going to go there, I'm going to run across it. So that's what I did. I did a little bit of training and bought a little kid's buggy and I put all my sort of food and water and equipment in it and went to the beach in, in Perth. And yeah, off, off I set, you know, off off we go. So that was... Um, <laughs> off we go. <coughs> yeah. We're talking about 82 days. And for the people that want uh, want to read about it, you made a blog at the time. I did, yeah. Um, 
running across Australia, I think it was called. I think I think it's still up. It's still, um, it's still up. And I think it's still up. Yeah, obviously I've not dated for a while because I'm not running across Australia. Yeah, it was, it was good. Um, it was a very different experience, I think, to the the bicycle ride, um, mainly because it was it was a, it was shorter and much more intense. It wasn't ah oh, just hang out for a few days and drink beer in this cool little beach place that I found and then off we go again. But the the bike trip was a lot more about taking the time and experiencing things. Whereas the run was, let's see how fast I can I can get across Australia here. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. Again, I met some really interesting characters, especially in, in, in Western Australia. There's a, Is there something you, you really remember, James, when you're talking about it? Is there something? Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely some – I mean, I met some really cool people. I mean, one group um, – I was sitting at the side of the road, um, and this uh, – I think it was starting to rain, and I was eating my Nutella sandwiches, which I had all the time. <laughs> Um, this uh, this car pulled up, and this sort of lady, sort of I guess like middle aged lady, wrote wound the window down and said, "Oh, how, how you doing there? Like, uh, what's going on?" Super friendly, right? You never really get that in England. And uh, yeah, we had a quick chat, and she's like, "Well, you know, like if we own a farm like fifteen kilometers down the road, so if you wanna if you wanna come stay with us for the night, um, yeah, you can. We've got a, a sheep shearing shed, and you can sort of set your set your tent up in there if you want." I was like. Cool. So yeah, I sort of went down there and I passed their farm and it was five o'clock and I was like, well, yeah, you know what? I could probably run another hour, but I'm going to take them up on it. So I sort of walked into this farm thing and, and I uh, met her and her husband and set myself up in the sheep shearing shed, which was awesome. It was proper <laughs> Australia. Um, and they were super nice. And then like, when they realized I wasn't some like serial killer and actually a normal person, you know, they invite me into the house and we had dinner and it was, it was a great evening. So really, really wonderful people there. Um, so this, you, you meet these great people. strange lady just oh these complete strangers yeah like they just stopped to talk to this random guy pushing his buggy kind of in the middle of nowhere um, near their house and sort of inviting him in and again you just meet these, these wonderful people and um, you know I met, I met some other interesting characters a couple of the miners you meet these random miners in Western Australia because it attracts a lot of them and it tends to be a, a certain unique kind of person that does mining out there what, um, what is so that what, James for me I'm, I'm no, no minors <laughs> what, what, what is that how is that well you know it's, people? it's you know West Australia there's t- there's nothing there it's, it's a very isolated place and they work really hard so it's very they work hard and they play hard so I think you it just attracts this certain kind of character I imagine the similar kind of people that, that work offshore on the, on the oil rigs up in Norway you know it's a it's a particular kind of person that um Hard to describe, and of course, of course, there's a lot of variation. But mm. um, you you get some real real characters there. And I remember one guy. He um, I was running along. It's ten o'clock in the morning, and he sort of drove up and stopped his van right there and got out and immediately offered me a cold beer out of his little little ice chest on the on the front seat. And we had a chat about I don't know life, the universe, and everything. Super interesting guy. I think he originally was from Hungary and. He'd moved out there and he was an iron ore miner and he was driving back from the night shift. And um, so, yeah, we had, we had a couple of beers at the side of the road at about 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, fascinating guy. And then sort of off he drives, you know, I guess trying to keep the truck on the road. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, you meet these interesting characters about being out there. Well, um, what was your strategies in, in this run uh, uh, opposite the travel with the bicycle, James? Yeah, I, th- I think the... It was kind of similar, you know, it was like, okay, I've set out to to run to to Sydney and I'm going to try and do that. And 
even if it really hurts, I'm going to make it. So I think there was that, that fear of failure. There was also that desire for adventure. Um, the only difference is it was more intense in some ways because, you know, you'd be running for 10 days straight and you'd be running 50 to 80 kilometers a day. Um, you know, and I, I hurt my, my leg at one point. So I had a, a quite a bad sprained ankle that all swelled up and I'd still run on it for 60 kilometers. And I'd just be like, well, you know, if it doesn't get any worse, I'll just keep going on it. And after about a thousand kilometers, it sort of stopped being swollen and was okay. I was very lucky, but um, you just sort of push through the pain. Again, I think it was that um, now I've started, I'm going to finish because I knew if I gave up and the ankle healed, as soon as it healed up, I'd have thought, well, I could have kept going, but I didn't. So um, I think that that was the driver for me. And yeah, it's just, you just get in that routine of just ignore the suffering and and keep going because it will be worth it. I just finished a book uh, about Taylor Hamilton, the cyclist. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, and he said in the book that uh, what he was really good at was the dealing with pain. And like he said in the book is that cyclists, like the Tour de France, is that, yeah, they use doping. But they're still extremely, extremely good at dealing with pain. And I yeah. presume, James, that after two years on a bike and now you're starting running, it's some pain involved. And as you said with your sprained ankle, is it that your levels of dealing with pain is so the threshold is so high at the moment after this after the cycling and the running. So if you even if you sprain your ankle, you still run for sixty kilometers. Yeah, you know, I I don't know whether it's so much a physical pain tolerance. But at the same time, it's. Um, I think you realize that you can deal with a certain level of pain and suffering, and it's that's okay. You know, but, it's but um, for, I, for some. Uh, sorry for interrupting, but for some people, they can't deal with pain at all. As soon as they feel the feeling or the sense of pain, they just give up. But for you, then, that you have the psychology of pain, and you also have this sprained ankle pain, like we see in MMA fighters. They can fight for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, with a broken toe, broken hand, or whatever it is. Yeah. No yeah. problem. And I'm curious, what's the mindset behind dealing with this pain? Yeah, I, I think it's. I think you just realize that it's only pain. Um, how do you realize I, it's only pain? How do you realize? Yeah, that's... I think, you know, if you've gone through enough of it and you realize that it does subside eventually... It was almost comes down to a hope thing. And one of my favorite quotes is actually a Lance Armstrong quote, um, where he talked about like, you know, you know, pain, pain might last for a minute or an hour or a year, but eventually it does subside and something else takes it, its place. Um, and the rest of the quote is, you know, but then if you quit, then it lasts forever. And I think that quote is incredibly poignant in that. You know, yes, you're running and you can't straighten your leg because your knee hurts so badly that it literally doesn't bend anymore. So you start running with straight legs, which is probably what makes your ankle get sprained. <laughs> but you, but you realize that, you know, when I stop running today and I'm laying in, in my sleeping bag, it won't hurt anymore. So, you know, this is just part of the price you pay of, of getting to the end. And, you know, it's like running a marathon. You know, it really, the last, Five miles really, really hurts. It hurts for everybody. But you know that it's only another five miles and you will get through it. And in a week's time, 
you you won't remember how much it hurt. You just remember that feeling of crossing the finishing line. And it's incremental, right? You, you learn how to deal with it. Do you get to this point where you're a Tour de France cyclist who, you know, their mission in life is, is the ability to suffer in a way that I, I don't think I even understand how much pain those guys take every single day. Actually, a friend of mine was a pro cyclist. He said the same thing. He's like, I, I might not be that brilliant at cyclist or cycling, but I really know how to suffer. And I think that's kind of one of those things that, that that sets them apart for the rest of us. But it's something you can learn to deal with over time. You just you just might not be able to do the Tour de France right now, but you can build up to it as with anything. And I think that's something that really helped me get through Australia because you realise what's okay pain and what's bad pain. That's oh, I've broken my leg. Right? Okay, now I should probably stop. Right? But that, but a sprained ankle. Well, I can probably keep going. I'll keep an eye on it. If it gets worse, then I'll stop. But if it's just pain, then that's okay. Um, but you know, it's it's something you kind of learn over time. But as Australia is a pretty large country, and it's it some is. extreme distances without any people. Did you experience the same thinking or negative? thinking patterns at this time at same as with the cycling when you were I, alone I, I i did i did um less so now i think that's partly because i've learned to deal with them better um, but there were definitely moments that got really hard and um i i took a whole bunch of um just like little motivate you know the rocky theme tune right <laughs> and a, a couple of like little kind of motivational sort of talks you know basically just sort of downloaded off youtube um And, you know, I'm not a huge fan. I don't think that, you know, these little motivational things, you know, they're not long lasting. Um, you know, it's not a particular way of building your life. I don't think because in order to be motivated, you need to do other things. But for these temporary things to kind of get you going for the next hour or that next five minutes, I, I found them quite useful just to, when I felt really down and it was raining or the headwind or I've been going for six days and I, I just hated running at that point. You know, you put on the Rocky training montage, and you know it gives you a, it gives you a lift, and that kind of keeps you going a little mm. bit. If, um, I, if I just elaborate on that one, uh, James. Yes. And what's really happening? You said that we can't live on motivation or speeches or music alone, and that is some way correct. But what you're re really doing is you're just changing your state. So when you're changing your state with music, for example, with the Eye of the Tiger, what happens is that your thinking patterns they change and when you yeah. change your thinking patterns your feelings change and when your thinking patterns and feelings change your body change so when all those three play together you change your state Tony Robbins is extremely good at this one and yeah so what you did then when you feel like sh shit <laughs> you, cha <laughs> you changed your state so so you trained yourself to change your state when you were in a bad place yeah I, I think that's right um And I completely agree with what you said. It, it definitely, that is exactly what it does. Um, and there are moments where it's very useful to do that. I, I guess my point is that if you if you didn't have a reason for running across Australia and you tried to do it just by playing the Rocky soundtrack 20,000 times, <laughs> it's not enough. You, you need more than that to kind yeah. of drive you to the finishing line. But you're absolutely right when you're in these sort of bad states. Um, you, know, you learn to recognize that. And, and these tools, you know, as simple as playing the Rocky Rocky theme. Um, do, you, do you use them? I, I today? Find helpful. Do you use them in your daily life if you're not running or doing an extreme thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if if I go for a run and I'm training, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I'll I'll throw it on a little bit just to just to kind of give you get yourself in that state where you can now 
make the most of your training and you're just, you don't give up halfway or you don't take it easy because maybe you've tired today. Um, and you know, I do find that a, a useful tool for sure. I, I definitely put a, I find, you know, it's a tool, it's not everything, but certainly for, you know, I definitely make use of it. And I think it's quite a valuable thing to have. It's a perfect tool for changing states. But, yeah, absolutely. But we are still running, James. And as as you said, you got some of the same patterns, but this time you train yourself to change state. But now you're getting to the end of the race. Last time on the other on the other adventure, you had six months. When did you start to think that? Oh, now just one more day, one more day. When did when did when did it change from having eighty two days to now it's just five days, six days? Uh, when did it change? 40. After 42 days. 42 days? Yeah, that was, that was when I got to a place called Sejuno, which is basically halfway. <laughs> it was uh, quite early in the process, I suppose. Anyways, there, there's a there's a really long stretch in, I guess, the middle almost, called the Nullarbor Plain. And it's this basically completely flat stretch, no trees, nothing for, what is it, 1,000-something miles, 1,200 miles. Um and there's a, there's a there's a petrol station every uh, hundred and something miles. There's really nothing there apart from the occasional <laughs> kangaroo and just this one road that just goes off into the horizon forever. And, and that was a tough stretch. I mean, you, I set off on that stretch with you know, my buggy weighed over a hundred kilos. I had forty four liters of water strapped onto it and a whole bunch of food because there's no supermarket for you know almost two thousand kilometers. Um, so that was getting, that was getting pretty bad by the end. My, my fuel was dry biscuits, you know, crackers. Cause that was the only thing I could find at the last stop. But how, but, uh, how, long, it, how long time do they use to run 2000 miles? Uh, well, so that, that bit, yeah, it was what 1000, I think it was 1200 miles or something. I think that took about 24 days, 23 days, somewhere around there to go from Norseman to Seduna. What? 24 days without having the opportunity to buy any food? Well, so, um, what kind, um, well, let me back up. So there are, there are small places to get, you can get like snacks, right? So you can buy a couple of chocolate bars or some, um, I don't know, some dry crackers, but not much. And then they have usually a little restaurant there. So you can get like a big hamburger, right? Okay. So every four days, but these things, when you're running across, they're spaced out there three, mostly four days between each other. So you're running for, you know, 40 miles, what's that, 65, 70 kilometers but each day. And then after four days, you get to one of these spots. Wow. So you can have like a meal, you know, it's, you know, you can have a bed because they have like a little thing. So it's something to get your brain again. Yeah. But in terms of an actual supermarket where you can buy more pasta or you can buy, I don't know, sardines or Nutella or anything like yeah. that, stuff that you'd actually be cooking in in those three-day segments, um, there's there's nothing really. So, so what know, by the eat, end, so what do you eat when you're when you're running for eighty two days? What do you eat Nutella? Yeah, uh, lots of nut- a lot of Nutella. For <laughs> I really like Nutella. Yeah, I had a lot of Nutella. I love Nutella. Thankfully, uh, well, it's tons of calories, and um, I quite and I I never get sick of it. So there's quite a lot of times. I think I've got a photo of me just sitting at the side of the road with a spoon and a big one kilo jar of Nutella, just going at it. Um, so no bananas, so yeah, no apples, no no fruits, no. No, well, it's very heavy, so you can buy a couple of bananas, but you know yeah. that only really lasts you the first morning. Then you have to get through them because otherwise you're carrying 
kilos and kilos of fruit with you. So most of it is, is pretty not good for you. I mean, a lot of pasta, tin sardines, because you can get like some, some food that way. I quite like sardines, which is helpful. And that's it. If you had some healthy food now, that gave you some real energy because what you're eating now, as I presume, is that it's empty calories. It gives them, gives you calories, but there's no vitamins or or minerals. Uh yeah. I mean, so I took took a vitamin pill, um, a couple of those. <laughs> a uh, vitamin helped. pill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of those. I don't know. I, I, the thing is, I think with when you're on on these these sections, um, I think your body is just. It doesn't really care what you put in it. I'll be honest, because is, is this a mind thing, uh, James? Because no, no, I don't think sure? so. It's yeah. I mean, I felt physically fine just literally living on pasta, sardines, and Nutella sandwiches. Okay, so they um, it's sardines, it's minerals at least. So you yeah, ate yeah, yeah. So I'd, I'd ha- exactly, yeah. So yeah, a little okay. bit of protein in okay. there, so and then most of yeah, and then Nutella and um and pasta, and, and I'd okay. make little wraps, get some like tortillas and. Okay. and just spread the okay. a lot of Nutella on the wrap. I understand. I, just, I thought it was just Nutella. Because you ate some. Oh, there, there were days where I had pretty much just Nutella. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I'd have like oatmeal in the morning with a bit yeah. of powdered. Milk. Okay. So, okay. It, it wasn't just Nutella. Okay. Of, yeah. Oh, so no, I understand because. Yeah. So it definitely <laughs> wasn't a complete diet. Yeah. But I think your body is literally, all it really cares about is, you know, it needs a kind of a little bit of most of stuff, but what it really needs is just volume of calories, yeah. um, and it will just burn through anything. And I, I mentioned in my book when I was cycling, I uh, I got I got to one town, and I was super super hungry because I hadn't eaten enough. So the next day, I, I ate twenty something thousand calories in one day, and um, I felt absolutely fine because um, your body is an amazing thing, and if it needs calories or it doesn't really care if they're empty or not it'll it'll suck them down so maybe, maybe my body's just lucky i i don't know maybe i'm just fortunate i can do that and, and others can't but maybe everybody's like that I, I don't know but it's worked for me so far how was it uh past the finish line in australia yeah, it was good actually um was it the same as crossing the finish line in uh no Argentina? no what um more and much more of an anticlimax. um i don't know why um, so my parents came out and had a few friends at the finishing line, which, um, whereas when I finished in, you know, the south, south of South America, it was just me. So I think that that gives you a different pattern and environment to finish in. So you don't get all retrospective and, and that kind of thing. But, um, no, I, for some reason the run was much less of, climax i think because the run was more of an incidental thing it was never i just did it because it sort of sounded like an interesting idea and then once i started i had to finish it because of the because i had to finish regardless of what that thing was but i I don't really like running um it was a good experience but it wasn't as interesting or amazing as the bike trip because you know the the scenery didn't change as much you had great moments for sure but it wasn't as epic an adventure in terms of the things i'd seen or the variation of people i'd met just because the bike trip was longer and more varied Mm. so i think i got to the end and i was more that was more uh okay i'm just ready to be done running now um and the last two weeks were really hard on the run i mean the last week i ran 301 miles um, which is an awful long way to run in a week after you've, 
I think the last two weeks was 564 miles because <laughs> I, I was trying to get there because my parents had got you know had just landed, so I didn't want them hanging around for a few days with nothing. So to you do. thought about your parents? Yeah, ironically, that that's what actually made me go faster at the end. I would have taken it a bit slower, but I was like, well, I don't want my parents to be like just hanging out in Sydney, you know, for an extra few days just because of me. So I just went faster, but it did mean the last bit was. It was pretty brutal. After seventy uh, days so, of running, yeah, it was that hurt. But so I think at the end, I was, I was in quite a lot of pain um, from those last couple of weeks. So I think I was, that was mostly just I'm so happy to be done. Mm. And it was, you know, it was a fun time, and like we went to the bar afterwards, and I was obviously quite hyperactive and happy. Mm. But I think deep down, that was more relief of not having to go running again. And and after that, I don't think I went running for six months, like at all. So. Um, so what led you to uh, travel to Mount Everest then? Yeah. So you got Everest sick and tired again or what? No, no. So, well, no, Everest was a bit different. So um, I went there in 2014 uh, to climb it and everything was going well. And then there was a big disaster that um, tragically killed, I think, 16 Sherpas. And um, because of that, they basically shut the mountain down. So we all went home. Um, and I'm going to try and go back there next year probably because um, unfinished business Everest is a bit of a different thing I mean I I really do like the mountains my, my mother's actually from um, South Tyrol um, oh. in the very north of, of Italy yeah. so I think I have mountains in my blood I feel like I'm happiest if I'm walking through the mountains and Switzerland is one of my favorite countries for for, for that reason did you, did you so, a lot as a child uh, James no I, I mean I almost never went to the mountains when I was a little kid but I took up snowboarding later on and I'm, you know, I've taken up more rock climbing, or not so much rock climbing, but mountaineering now. And in, in California is a great place to do it. And I've always loved the feeling of it and, and being up in high places. And I tolerate high altitude really well. Um, and I, I've been to the Himalayas a couple of times and kind of climbed in South America and that kind of thing. So more of a hobby. And I that suppose. kind of thing. Okay, so you've been to the Himalayas. <laughs> yeah, I've been there a couple of times. So I did this uh, this big trek in in, in Pakistan uh, in the Himalayas. Um, that I mentioned when I was at university. And then I went back there um, several years later, just backpacking around in India, and I went up to the the Himalayas up there and sort of did some just random walking, but pretty high up. How was it? How was oh, it? the Himalayas were amazing. Um, I, the scale of the Himalayas is something that you almost have to see it to understand just how big they are. And it's something you can't get from really any other mountain range that I've been to. You know, even the Alps or, or even the Andes, they're big, but then you get to the Himalayas and you see these, you know, 4,000 vertical meter walls right there. And then there's another one and there's another one. And it's just a scale that is just, you have to see it to really appreciate it. It's a, it's a unique place and, uh, you know, some wonderful cultures around there in the valleys and it feels a bit lost world. So I, I really do like the Himalayas. It's, it's an amazing thing. So, um, so part of going to Everest is, uh, you know, to get back there and experience it. But, you know, for me, Everest is about the experience and I suppose the challenge of it. I want to know what it's like to be up in the so-called death zone at the top of Everest. And, and you know, you read about it and it's you hear about these, you know, these, these are climbs that have done it and the amazing adventures they've had. And I just want to know what that's like. I mean, it's probably going to be horrible. But, um, but to know what it's like to be up there and be part of that story is something I find really interesting and attractive. And it was amazing to be up, you know, climbing in base camp and you meet all these these guys you read about, you know, I met Dave Breeches is a famous documentary guy. He, he filmed the original Everest documentary and he's just up there in base camp. He sort of met him a couple of times, actually 
ran into him in this little hostel uh, bar place down in a little town called Namchi Vazar, which is at the bottom of the valley, and had a couple of beers with him. And um, it's just an amazing part of the story to be into. So th- that is one of the big reasons that I'm attracted to Everest and, you know, what the challenge you, of doing it, I suppose, as well. What do you think is the driving force behind behind getting up to the to the death point? Or yeah, I mean, for me, it, it's twofold. It really is trying to understand what that's like because um, you read about it and just to know what it's like to be up there and trying to you can read about it, but experiencing it is a whole different thing. So I think that's a big part of it. And then, of course, the challenge of of, of getting to the top of Everest. Um, Yeah, there's a, there's always that as well. I think that's overdone, and you hear about the you know people that just have a midlife crisis and go and climb Mount Everest. And I, I don't think I'm one of those. I think it's it's another experience, it's another challenge, um, an environment that I love being in. Um, so it's something that uh, that I'm sort of keen to to go back and try again. It's a it's, it is a wonderful experience. What we also seen on YouTube, James, that you base jumped. I have base jump, yes. Is it that uh, you never experience fear? You don't, you don't have the feeling of fear, or what's, what's the oh, reason no, you're I get, limits? No, I, I get terrified. I mean, so there's you get terrified, <laughs> absolutely. So I, I, I'm not <laughs> Please, I scared of heights, but there are. So this is something you learn when you're base jumping that there are two kinds of people. They're called edge people, and basically, if you're standing at the top of a thousand meter cliff. The edge people are happy to just walk up to the very edge of the cliff, stand there and just look over the cliff. Um, I'm not an edge person. I literally have to get down on the floor, like five meters away from the cliff, and kind of crawl up to it on my hands and knees and sort of peek the littlest bit possible over the edge. Are you? Um, yeah, yeah. If okay. I don't have a parachute on, it's terrifying. But some people with no parachute are happy to just go and look over the edge. They're edge people. Um And base jumpers, they fall into two categories. Um, there's plenty of base jumpers that are edge people and plenty that are not, and I'm not. Um, when I've got a parachute on and I'm ready to jump and I know that if it all goes wrong, at least I've got a parachute on, I feel a bit happier about it and then I can make my way. But walking that last one meter to the edge, for me, is by far and away the scariest thing about base jumping. Once I'm at the edge and I have my toes literally over the edge, I feel a lot calmer than being one meter away from the edge about to shuffle up to the edge of it it's just that's the point i have to get over my fear and i find it hard it's it's terrifying but i also know that the feeling of jumping off and then flying down and seeing the cliff and the i jumped a waterfall and it was an amazing experience falling with the water and you see water in a whole different way that you would you would never otherwise see it literally it's it feels like it's floating in thin air because it's falling at the same rate you and you just see it move in incredible ways and And then the parachute opens, then you're flying, and then the parachute opens, and you realize that you're not going to die today. And uh, it's, a, it's an incredible adrenaline rush. And I wouldn't say I'm an adrenaline junkie, but it is an amazing experience and something is unique. And it, it was something that I'd always wanted to do ever since I saw a video of a base jump when I was a little tiny kid. Um, so yeah, it's just sort of something I, I worked up to over the years, and I did a lot of skydiving, which you have to do first. And I you know, got the opportunity to actually come to Norway and, and and do some base jumping there and in Switzerland and um no it's it's, it's terrifying. Um I take every jump really seriously because if it bites you it really bites you because you only have one parachute. <laughs> um you know, but I minimize the risks, right? Some people you know, they sort of rock up and just jump off with a normal skydiving rig, which is incredibly dangerous. Whereas I got all the right gear, I kind of did the course by the manufacturers and really tried to minimize the risk. Mm 
that impossible to enable me to get over, minimize these hurdles that I have to then get over by going to the edge and so on. But so to understand it correctly, James, so your strategy to overcome fear, because I presume that you have overcome a great deal of fear because you've been traveling alone a lot. And you say that oh, it's a lot of incredible people, but I, I presume you had some fear on your way, in in some way. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it, and the same uh, on, on same on Everest. I, I think when, yeah. when they died, there was some fear involved, uh, and that when you when you're base jumping is also some fear involved. So I'm so I'm <clears throat> interested in understanding your strategy for overcoming this fear because you've done it a lot. Sure. And I think the the base jumping, I think, is is a great example of this because, you know, it's a it's a short term, very vivid, very obvious fear that you're overcoming, which is you're about to jump off a cliff with one parachute <laughs> and lots of things can go wrong. Some say great. Um, yeah, but so I think it's a couple of things. Um, you know, I try and minimize the fear so you learn how to pack the chute and stuff. So so whatever you're doing, if there's a way of minimizing the risk then that's something I'm very keen on doing. And people think I'm crazy, but I'm really not. I actually try and do things as sensibly as, as you can. Other things like the bike trip, you have no idea what's coming. So you can't really minimize the risk that way because you might not experience the good things if you're trying to get rid of every experience. But the base jumping is very much overcoming fear. I think the strategy there is really one about, it's about the the goal of what you're trying to achieve. And I know that, you know, I've minimized the risk. I'm standing a meter back from the edge. And I know that I want to experience the thing that I can experience if I just get to the edge and jump off this cliff. And it is an amazing experience and it's a unique experience. But to do that, I have to get past that one meter bit to get to the edge and then actually go three, two, one and actually jump. Um, you know, and, and, and that's, that's courage, right? I mean, that's overcoming fear. And I think if you have a strong enough desire to do the thing you want to do, um, it will push you past that that fear, whatever it is, whether it's you know in your business, in a relationship, in in anything. I think it, that concept holds for everything. And base jumping is just a very obvious version of that. You know, if you didn't really care about jumping off and you didn't really want to know what it's like, there is zero chance you're ever going to do that last meter. But for me, you know, jump. I want to know what it's like, you know, jumping off that waterfall, and I've got to do that last meter. And, you know, it's like two bits of a scale and eventually the desire outweighs the fear and that's when you sort of take those steps. And I've always been able to do that, thankfully. So if I understand you correctly, James, it's all about the experience for you. So it, it looks, it sounds like if if you don't overcome this fear, you won't have the experience. And it looks like your experience is so extremely important for you. So if you don't get this experience, you feel like in some way you have failed. Is yeah, to an extent. Yeah, I mean, I, I it come. Yeah, I, th- I think that that in some way is true. Um, but there's lots of experiences out there in the world, right? And and some of them are very, very simple and not dangerous to have at all. And like I mentioned you know, going to a nice restaurant. I mean, you know, having a nice meal that's a wonderful experience, and you can just sort of turn up there and you know off you go. Yeah. But other experiences like knowing what it's like to be the top of Mount Everest or you know falling down the side of a cliff, um, these happen to be relatively risky <laughs> scary experiences to get um but, and, but, but does this feeling make you feel more alive oh absolutely i think yeah. it's um yeah i mean especially the base jumping thing that was the moment when i jumped the waterfall it's called schrag and it's, it's the i don't know it's like the 
tenth highest single drop waterfall in the world. It's it's big. Um, but the feeling of that parachute opening after flying literally down this waterfall um, with this beautiful fjord right in front of me, without doubt, the most intense, incredible ex- moment of my life. Just you're not going to die, and it's just been this incredible rush of sensations and visuals and everything that you've never had before. Um, was just an amazing, incredible moment. I mean, it really was just the amount of adrenaline and endorphins and whatever <laughs> else you have was yeah. just at the max. Um, but- it was really quite an amazing thing. So I think for me, it does make you feel more alive. I, I don't like the fear bit. Like I don't get a kick of being scared to death on things, which is why I minimize the risks. But um, having these experiences like that um, really make you kind of feel like, you know, you, you you're alive. Yeah, I guess that's a great way of putting it. So does that, this mean, James, that you're always searching for this next feeling of it? So you always want this feeling of feeling, oh, I want to feel alive, that's the reason I want to get to Everest. And when I finish with Everest, I want to do something else. I want, always want this feeling. Is that correct? Yeah, to an extent. I, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm addicted to it per se, but yeah, there's, there's I mean, always... It's, a, it's that, a driving force for you. Yeah, yeah it, it, it is a driving force. Yeah, yeah, having these experiences, yeah. It, it definitely... And, I go through waves. Like sometimes, you know, I, I used to sort of do track days and sort of race motorcycles and it's that same thing. I mean, knowing what that experience is like to get your, your knee down in a corner. Um, I always wanted to know what that was like. And the first time you, you're going along and you're really trying to lean off the bike and you sort of scrape your knee and you're like, <laughs> whoa, I did it. Um, but then it changes, right? And then you start thinking, well, now how can I get my knee down in every corner? And then, all of a sudden, you're touching your elbow on the ground, thinking, okay, it's quite a long way over now. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's those kinds of things. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I'll you know, take up uh, well, mountain climb recently and surfing. and So I, I do try and do these things, but I don't sit down on a Monday morning going, right, what crazy experience do I want to have this week? I probably should, to be honest. I think that would probably make my life more interesting. But there's, a, there's a lot going on. But no, it does having a goal of something to work for out there that is a new experience for me, whether it's climbing Mount Everest in one year or starting a business or, you know, doing, going to, I don't know, a nice restaurant on Thursday, you know, whatever that is, have, having that, that destination, that, that kind of goal out there of something that is new and interesting for me, um, I think gives me a bit more of a reason for living if that's not a crass way of putting it. I find it extremely in- inspiring and motivating at the same time because I can see that your driving force is all about experience. You want to experience so much that you combat fear. You use the fear is just an obstacle for you. So you see that, f- for example, a lot of people are they are stopped by fear. So, for example, a lot of people wouldn't have taken two years on their bicycle, even if they had the money to do it, because the fear of not knowing, the fear of not where to sleep, the fear of what if I got attacked, the fear of getting sick, is a lot of fears. And these fears, they stop people from getting all these adventures and experiencing things. And from what I'm hearing from you, James, is that in some way you have just... Fear is just a small piece of obstacle for you. It's all about experience. So when you say that after the Australia run, it was an anticlimax. The experience was that tough for you uh, that you get the same climax as the, as the first time. So when you're telling me is that 
he jumped uh, the when you um, jumped um, parachute is I've just forgotten what was the word for it when you uh, base jumping ba- base jumped yes yeah also all about the experience about about the river and you get the fjord and all the nature it's all about the experience so I want to ask you a question because I know that that's the reason I founded No More Fear is that. I want to talk to people like you because I know that a lot of people are getting stopped by fear. So by founding No More Fear, I wanted—that's the reason I'm talking to you now—is that getting your strategies that people get can get expi- inspired and see that he can do it. So can so can I. I. I can do it as well. I just need the strategy to get over this fear. So for for you to do this, James, you have to have a why big enough. In business world and I, especially start I, I, yeah, why is is if you want to learn more about why you can read a book of uh, Simon Sinek, but why is all about this driving force we have? And you said earlier is that it's about the, the experience, but it's also about hope. Yeah, and what I understand from you, James, is is also a lot about hope. So, what is hope for you? I got to discuss why later, but I'm curious about the hope for you because all of your travels is a lot about hope. Yeah, exactly. So I, I completely agree with you that you know a lot of it is about about why. Because if you don't have a good reason for for doing it, you know, it's like those those scales I talked about where you know, the reasons the why needs to be big enough to outweigh the the fear that's holding you back. But a part of that to answer the second part is that. When I talk about hope, it's more about the belief that it's going to work. Because if you don't believe, you know, if you're trying anything, let's say you're base jumping as an example, and you don't believe that the parachute is going to open, there is zero chance you're going to be able to base <laughs> jump. Because um, if you don't believe it's going to work, then y- your fear will always overwhelm you, right? Whereas if you believe the parachute is going to work and everybody, every single time somebody base jumps, they believe that parachute is going to work because if you don't, you, you can't do it. Right. Um, so for me, when I look at whether it's base jumping, you know, I, I learn how to pack the parachute and you take it easy and you, and you minimize all the risks so that you think in your mind, okay, it's going to work. I believe it's going to work. And now that you have the belief that hope almost, um, you can do anything. It's the same with the the bicycle trip. You know, I I done some backpacking when I was in my undergrad, right? So I've been around um, Southeast Asia for a while, and then I went around South America for a couple of months, and and it was a kind of low impact, easy way to get into some of these adventures. You go from kind of tourist place to tourist place, but you're still learning and you're figuring stuff out, and you meet interesting people, and um, it's like crazy adventure light. You know, I had some really cool adventures. I got I got lost in the jungle in Borneo and a bunch of other things. Uh, uh, what? But uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. So I, was, I was trying to shortcut in, in, on, on Borneo. Um, so I ended up hitchhiking on logging trucks right through the middle of Borneo. Um, but they ended up taking me to the wrong place because I asked them to take me to a place called Belaga and there were two of them and I went to the wrong one. But it's brilliant. I ended up staying in like a logging camp. They sort of took me in and fed me and I was playing like table tennis with them in the middle of absolutely nowhere in the jungle. Um, but it's experiences like that that you think, okay, no matter how crazy it gets, I've just hitchhiked on a truck in the, in a jungle in a foreign country. I'm in absolute middle of nowhere. And it turned out to be a wonderful experience. 
Um, to this day, it was such a fabulous experience. And what that gave me is it gave me the belief that when I go and get on my bicycle or I start running across Australia or whatever it is, I believe that it is going to work out okay. I believe that, yeah, stuff that's crazy will happen perhaps or, I'm yes, I'm going to suffer. But I believe, I know deep in my heart that I'm going to come back in one piece, okay? And if you can set off on any adventure believing it's going to work, then you'll be able to overcome that fear, I think. Um, but if you set off and think, oh, I, I'm, I'm sure that I'm something horrible is going to happen. You know, let's say you're going to South America and you think, I, you know, look, it's so dangerous. I've seen all the news reports. You know, my belief is that I'm going to get robbed. Then you're going to find it very difficult to actually get off the couch and go to South America. And, you know, how do you instill that belief? Well, that's, that's probably a topic for somebody else. I don't know how you believe that. The only way I found to do it is you've just experienced and having successes really helps, right? Mm. So like my backpacking thing, you have a good experience and you start thinking deep down, okay, I believe I can do this. And it's much harder if you haven't had an experience of things to just jump straight in because then it gets a lot scarier. And I found that, you know, starting a business that I found that a very difficult process because I hadn't done one before. I had no internal belief that it was going to work out because the last three had worked out. Mm. Um, so I found that a much more scary concept than base jumping, strangely enough. Like you said, is somebody else has tell about beliefs, but it's all about building beliefs in small steps. Like I said, that you started traveling tourist light. And for each time you felt accomplishment. And for each time you feel accomplishment, you feel safe. And you feel safe, you feel that we can control it. In some way, we feel that we have control at least. So it looks like, James, that you have just accomplished, 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 accomplished. And I remember, I remember one story from uh, your tourist light travel that they were in Pakistan, I think. Uh, you were at the, at the border. Uh, and uh, in that story, you meet a man with a awful story. But for yeah. for a person that that had been afraid would have run just of the sight of this man. <laughs> If you tell that story, yeah, yeah, a lot of people understand what I'm saying about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, so this was one of my very first travel experiences, and again, you know, it's unfortunate everything went, went brilliantly. But the the first place I ever really backpacked in was Pakistan, which is probably one of the hardest places to backpack in. But I did a, this expedition I mentioned in in the Himalayas. Pakistan sort of sticks up into the Himalayas um, with a group of university friends. So. You know, you're in a safe environment because they've done a bunch of travels. So you're like, okay, brilliant. And then I sort of set out on my own. But I end up in this uh, city called Peshawar, which is right on the Afghan border. And um, really no tourists there. And this was a long time ago, so it was before it got really crazy. But um, yeah, I, I was walking around the old quarter there and it's the sun's going down, it's getting dark and I'm looking for some food. And, you know, there's no tourists, right? So where do you get food from? Uh, eventually, I found this tiny little hole-in-the-wall little restaurant. It was all white tiles, and they had, like, these bright fluorescent kind of strip lights there. Really basic. And it was dark at this point. And, and out the front, they had um, a couple of half-cut um, oil drums that had turned into a grill. And there was a guy there grilling chicken just by the light of this these coals. And uh, it was amazing. This this probably the scariest-looking man I've ever seen. You know, especially as a what nineteen year old kid from England, he had like the the robes on and this big beard and 
Um, he had his machine gun, his Kalashnikov, like slung over his back, which I don't know was a particularly good idea doing that while cooking over a fire, <laughs> but never mind. And big beer, and like you know, and and all, all just illuminated by the these coals. It, you know, super sort of crazy, scary. Anyway, so I was like, okay, okay, it'll be okay. So I can't find anywhere else to eat. So I kind of walked into the little tiny little cafe and sat down at the little tables there and, you know, ordered my chicken from the, the kid that worked there. And um, after a few minutes, this this guy who was cooking outside comes and brings my chicken and he sort of sits down and he asked me in perfect English, he's like, oh, you know, do you mind if I join you? Um, so, yeah, so I was like, of course. So he sort of sat down and, um, yeah, amazing guy. So it, it turned out he, he was Afghan. Um and yeah, he'd, he'd basically, he'd come to Pakistan from Afghanistan um, in, I think, the late 80s, um, where he'd been in the Mujahideen. He was one of the freedom fighters. And I remember seeing these guys on the news when I was a little kid, like seeing all the craziness that was happening when the Soviets um, invaded Afghanistan then. And, and to actually meet one of these guys, who'd, and he'd come over because you know his, his village had been bombed by the Soviets and all his family had been killed or something. So he sort of came over as a as a refugee and started this little little restaurant. Um, and you look at all the stereotypes that we have of people. And this guy to me looked as scary as he could possibly be. And, um, you know, just like you sort of see now and everybody sort of thinks, Oh, you know, these are the bad guys, but you know, he was a wonderful, wonderful human being. And just the, the privilege to talk to him about some of his experiences and, you know, things that I could barely, I've never understand what it was like to have the things happen. And, He'd come there and all he really wanted was just, you know, security and, you know, the ability to make a life for himself and, and, you know, raise a family and that kind of thing. And it really opened my eyes up to sort of the good in people and that you really can't judge people just by how they look um, or whether they're carrying a machine gun. They might be the most wonderful people in the world. Um, and I think that really helped me in the future of when you have people drive up in black vans with tinted windows that get out with like military fatigue because <laughs> you don't know, are they going to be one of the good guys or the bad guys? And I've found in general, they tend to be one of the good guys, even though you might not think it. So I definitely trying to use those experiences. And, and like you said, I now have that belief that when I meet somebody in the middle of nowhere on my travels, I, I, I believe they're going to be a good person. It's going to work out and it doesn't always happen. You, you know, I've had some bad encounters, but if you think they're going to be bad, then you never go anywhere. Mm. So yeah, it's it, one thing feeds on to another, but yeah, I've been quite fortunate to meet some, some really quite incredible people over the years that have shaped my outlook in a positive way. I'm really interested in your strategies, James, because we talked about the strategies for fear. We talked about the strategies when you're feeling down and you're running and you're just exhausted. But I, also know that you must have you must have an extremely good strategy when you're traveling because you've been traveling on a bike alone you've been running alone and when you wake up you know that i today i have to run or i have to turn on a bicycle for seven eight nine ten hours then you need some strategies you need some strategies from the from the time you wake up on your pillow or Whatever you are, whatever it is, you need a strategy. What's the strategy, James? The strategy that make you suffer. I say suffer. Yeah, <laughs> each yeah. day. What's, what's that strategy? Well, I, th I think one of the things I found, especially on when I was camping out there, I think you just learn to you learn to love the situation you're in. I think that was probably the biggest strategy that I've I've come across. 
You'll learn to uh, love the situation. You're yeah, in. so, you know, you wake up in your sleeping bag, right, mm-hmm. at the side of the road. And rather than think, oh, I was in a sleeping bag and I was sleeping on a rock and it's really uncomfortable and I hate camping and now I have to eat these oats with water and some powdered milk and then I have to go and run for, you know, 50 miles. But if you sit there and you go, hey, how cool is this? I'm camping. This is brilliant. Nobody gets to camp in the, in the middle of the outback and, you know, there's... I can see the sun coming up, so it's going to be a sunny day. And, you know, I, who knows what I'm going to see today. And then, Or maybe you hear like a kookaburra and you're like, no way, I'm in Australia. This is so cool. Um, and I, I just try and look on that positive side of thing because if you wake up every day hating what you're doing, whether it's running across Australia or going to work, um, then, you know, everybody's got a limit. And eventually you're like, screw this. And you sort of throw the papers up in the air and mark, <laughs> right? I guess I've done that before. But if you can find a way where you just think, hey, how cool is this? Mm. Um, then I, I think it it resets the frame of where you are. I mean, I remember having this at work once, you know, to perhaps a more relevant thing for people where, um, yeah, the job was really tough and, yeah, I mean, it was it was bad. Um, but um, they moved us to the near the top floor of this big office building in San Francisco while they were renovating our offices. And um, completely by luck, not through any form of management ability or skill. They end up giving me this like really motivational, incredible view over the San Francisco Bay and the Golden Gate Bridge. And you kind of just see a bit of the ocean there and the sun would go down and it would illuminate everything. And you see the fog. And I just, you know, and so rather than going to work going, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to do this silly presentation or, Oh, you know, I've only had three hours of sleep a night for the last three weeks. And this is horrible. I could go in there thinking, who knows what I'll see on the bay today? You know, it's going to be really awesome to see that sunset. And you just sort of focus on those little moments. You get to your desk and rather than look at this big pile of work, you sort of just look out the window for a minute or two and go, you know what? This isn't this bad, you know, this could be a lot worse. And so I think that in pretty much every situation, there's a positive, you know, you're at the top of a mountain in a storm. I remember in, in uh, Argentina, and I was uh, sort of sharing a tent with a guy and you could be sitting there going, oh, it's cold and we've got like ramen noodles to eat and all that kind of stuff. And it's horrible. Or you could sit there going, how cool is this? I'm on the side of a mountain in Argentina stuck in the tent <laughs> in the storm. Nobody gets to do that. It's amazing. So I think reframing the situation you're in and trying to look on those positives and just rather than focus on the negatives, uh, especially if you're in something for the long haul and it's not just a one-off thing. I think becomes a really powerful tool. And I think that's something that has definitely helped me in these kind of longer adventures. So reframing, that's, that's the key word here. Yeah. Uh, I, because I've, I think uh, from what you're telling me, it's, from what you're telling us, James, is that I think you're using reframing a lot. When you suffer, when you have you sprained your ankle, when everything goes to shit, <laughs> yeah. pardon the language, you reframe it. You reframe it that... Oh, it, it was an ex, extreme experience. It was, I can see the mountain view. I can, I can see the kangaroo. You always reframe. But does this mean, James, that from your suffering, you have trained yourself to reframe? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where if you've... If you don't do it, I think eventually you just you end up giving up. Um, oh, since it's so not I, since it's not a solution to give up, you train. Yeah, it to it, I, exactly. I mean, I I think 
It's a good question. I, I think like the bike trip was probably the first big sort of adventure I'd done where, you know, that it didn't involve a lot of suffering in that. And I think that if you, if you had to work, it's like having a really bad job, right? If you woke up every single morning thinking, I can't believe I have to go to work. And I kind of had this before where I didn't do this and eventually something snaps and you, you just quit. So if you know that you, it's going to be two years and you're in for the long haul and there are reasons to be there, I think you, maybe it happens automatically, maybe it's somewhat consciously, but I think you, you start having to reframe it because it's the only way out of that situation. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, of course it makes sense. Um, but I, I think I've been quite lucky in that I, I, I do tend to be quite an optimistic person and I do try to look on the bright side of things. And, um, you know, so I, I think I find it somewhat easy to reframe most situations to be, to be good. And, you know, as, as you mentioned Tony Robbins before, I know one of his things is about, it's not so much what happens. It's more about the meaning you ascribe to, what happens that that's what really counts yep. so i i do try and keep that in mind and yeah you know it's raining and i remember what uh, i remember <laughs> i remember i was on my run and it was right near the end and it, i woke up and it was raining and i had literally one piece of dry bread for breakfast and and that's also what i had for dinner so i literally <laughs> like that that was it and i just woke up and i was like i'm so tired i'm so miserable um i've got one piece of bread but then you reframe and you think well you know, this is going to make a great story and I'll be out of here in a minute and who knows, maybe, maybe it'll go okay. And um, you sort of reframe it to being this, well, this will be really cool later on. You sort of think, oh yeah, telling people about this storyline now. And I remember, uh, you know, I got out of my tent eventually. I was like, okay, it's, it's going to be an okay day. This rain will stop. And I ran up this hill and probably about 300 meters from where I camped was this beautiful roadside cafe restaurant with an attached motel I could have stayed in and <laughs> all these things. I had no idea it was there. So I stopped literally just around the corner from it. Um, so amazing. All of a sudden that your day gets better. So um, yeah, you know, it's a, it, I, I think it's a useful thing and we forget to do it. We, it's easy to focus on the negative. Mm. We're trying to focus on what's positive about the situation. There's always positive about every situation and trying to focus on that, I think is a, is a great strategy, especially getting through the long haul and things. No doubt, James. Just going to change the track a little bit on on the end of the podcast. If you want to give you some yourself some advice, to James, to your eighteen year old self, what would that have been? Do you think? Oh, good question, eh? <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I mean, I look back at the things I've done. I don't regret doing anything. Um, probably the only thing I think I would change is that. Well, I'd, I'd say two things to my, my young self. One is um, that the world is an awful lot bigger and more interesting than I perhaps realized when I was 18. Um, and it took me a while to sort of get into some of these adventures. And I was very fortunate. I met some amazing people um, when I was at university that really opened my eyes to the to the rest of the world. Um, but you know, I remember like the longest bike ride I'd done as a kid um, was probably about 20 miles. And to go 20 miles, that's there and back to the next sort of village. And I remember thinking that was the furthest distance in the whole world. It was like going to the moon. Um, such a long, I mean, I was like 45 minutes away from home each direction. Um, you know, it was, and then all of a sudden you realize, well, you can cycle thousands of miles in the absolute middle of nowhere. And it's the sort of thing you don't realize is possible. And it took me a while to get in, you know, in the swing of things like that. Um, 
So I think just reminding myself that the world is a big and amazing place and to go and look for that inspiration, I think is the thing. And then the other thing as well, this is a little bit different topic, but I think for me at least, I've never really had that overarching plan of what to do with life, at least not until recently. So I I do feel I, I kind of bounce from one thing to another without really having the ideal plan. And I think if I had thought about what I really wanted when I was 18, I could probably fit it in a few more of these adventures um, by having that more of a plan, at least a longer view plan. So I think it's a combination of having, you know, what do you want to accomplish this year and in three years and in five years and in 20 years? Mm. And I always had, what do I want to accomplish this year and next year? And I never really had the five and 20 year plan. And I always used to think it was unnecessary, but looking back, I think it's a lot more necessary than perhaps I appreciated at the time. Very interesting, James. And I think it's extremely important that you say this, uh, especially with a plan because if we always go round and round and round and round <laughs> in our in our own conscience all the time nothing happens and yep. we start blaming others we start blaming others why did I experience that why, why didn't I do that why is my why does my life suck so I don't have this opportunity we start blaming others but if we have a plan for it we can do the steps we need to take or the actions we need to take to get something to happen. So exactly. you haven't had these experiences if you haven't taken the actions in your own hands. Yeah, exactly. But what I've also been quite, and I have done it a period. That, that, is, that is true. But you're absolutely right. I think what was missing for me was that the, there are some goals you, you can reach in two weeks. There are some you can reach in a year, but there are other goals that might take 10 years. And working towards those super long goals is something that, I've never really focused on. And I think that has definitely that's, that's been something that's missing. Um, but it's something I'm more aware of now. So when I do my, my goals and my plans, it's something I, I do look at and say, you know, where do I want to be in 20 years time? Yeah. Which is something that when I was sort of young and, you know, two years seemed like an eternity, right? Um, but you're absolutely right. Fast. Unless you have a goal, you, you, you can't, you can't take, you know, you can't do everything one day. Right. So um, it's important. What we learn from, from age, at least, from, from my experience is that we see that every day goes so extremely fast I mean, you know yep. if, if I don't take this step today or don't take this action today it's, it's Jocko Willink I think is was, was the person saying this is that being disciplined now is freedom in, in the future and that is something I take it to heart because if I do a, a, an action today I know it's going to have a consequence in the future so if I'm laying on my couch and doing nothing, I will I'll have to work hard in the future. But if I work just two hours, two hours or three hours more each day, if I can, I know that I will get some freedom in the future. I don't know when, but I will get it. If I do the right steps, at least. Yeah, but definitely. I'm just, and, and that's always been something that I've struggled with. Um, I, I'm terrible at doing that one thing every day and, and building up. And um, I'm getting better. I mean... I mean, I, I talked about my training for my bicycle trip where you know, rather than training for six months, you know, every day, I, I, I trained for three days a week for three weeks, right? so <laughs> nine days worth of training um, because I, I, I didn't appreciate what we're talking about at that, at that age. But now when you know, I'm talking about, you know, possibly going back to Everest next year, I mean, I started training two months ago. So that wow. is a that is a nine month solid full on training program. Wow. So I, I feel that. I, I definitely agree with your point. And it's something that I've had to learn over time that, 
you know, what you do today, you might not see the benefit tomorrow or the day after or in six months. But eventually, it will be the thing that helps you get to your goal. And maybe, maybe that comes with a little bit of age and experience, knowing that um, that if you do stuff, it does eventually pay off. And I think something I never appreciate. Yeah. And I think it's important. It's, I think it's come from age, and that's the reason I also want to want to share it. Is I didn't know this when I was twenty, <laughs> but if I had realized it, I would especially have done something different. Because a lot of times we just want to lay down, just relax. Yeah. And if you have to just done one little action each day, just one little action, just talk to one pe- one person or meditated or trained or whatever it is if you want to what what do you want to accomplish you will have so much benefit five or ten years later yeah so just think about meditating just for five minutes each day you know that in 10 years you'll be a completely different person yeah from that, completely completely from agree. five minutes yeah but we don't, I, I mean, don't think about it this way Exactly. I mean, I, the, the, the example I, I always think about is learning a language. If you learn one word a day, how long does that take? 10 seconds? Yeah. Um, in a couple of years, you'll be able to speak the language. Yeah. Um, Maybe don't do it. <laughs> and I don't do it, exactly. <laughs> but I think. <laughs> See, I, mean, I should have this in my. In my I told you, I'm, I'm still learning how to do this playing stuff. But I think it's because we, don't, we, we are not conscious about it. But when we do become conscious and somebody reminds us of it, then it works. But we get back to all, uh, our old habits and we forget it. But if we get, get a reminder, James, today, remember, five minutes meditating. Okay, okay, five minutes. <laughs> okay, was one week, okay. And, and then there's a new habit. And yeah, then it's exactly. just, just go unco- unconsciously. But... Just a couple more questions at the end, James. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) A successful person. What is or who is a successful person for you, James? Sure. Uh, That's a great question. Um, You know, at the end of the day, I I think that's something that means a different thing to different people, right? Um, But but for you, at least. For for me, at least, yeah. It's What is a successful person? I think for me, it's somebody that has done the best they could with what they had. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. Um, so for me, you know, I'm I'm never going to be a billionaire. Well, sure. I hope I will be, but I probably <laughs> won't be. Um, <laughs> you said something, yeah. <laughs> you said something early in this conversation, yeah, James. Yeah. <laughs> and you said, if you believe it, it possibly it will Break possibly if you believe exactly. well, you're going to get robbed in the yeah it, you're going to it, get robbed exactly exactly <laughs> so when well, you're you saying i'm not going to be a billionaire no you're not <laughs> oh that that's true i i my only argument was that is that what, what i've realized over time is that i think you can just because you say ah oh, i believe something doesn't mean it's going to happen but what it does mean is that you open up the possibility of it happening um, I, I'm always a bit skeptical. People say, if you want to make loads of money, just just think, just believe you can. Well, if that you just believe it and you don't do anything about it, then that you doesn't work. Make loads of money. That doesn't work. Um, but if you but believe if you in believe, it and yeah. have a strategy and you put your focus and energy over time, <laughs> then it might. Then it might. <laughs> exactly. Then it might exactly. work. Yeah. Exactly. But if you don't do that, it definitely won't. Yeah. I think that's that's the key thing yeah. to know. Um, yeah, but for success for me, if I look for myself, what's me being successful? I think it's 
you know, I laying down, you know, in my deathbed, hopefully many years from now, not regretting the things that I'd done or regretting missing out anything. Um, you know, and, and that's one thing. I think also, you know, making the world a better place, adding some value to the world. I think that for me is, that's what defines me as success, at least in my career. Um, it's something that, you know, I, I want to lie there knowing that the world is a better, different place because I was in it. And if I can't say that, you know, lying on this deathbed many years from now, then, then I think that I would not have been successful. And for me, it's never been about, you know, the bigger house and the fast car. I like some of those things for the experience of knowing what it's like to have that. But for me, that's not what it's all about. Um, and not everybody's different, right? Some people like what they want to do absolutely is have the biggest house on the block. And that's fine. You know, people have these different things. But for me, I think there's a lot of other things in life that that drive me and the guiding force. And, and that's what I really feel that success is. And it does feel like a lot of the times in the world, we, we get too, the world is far too focused, I think, on, you know, how fast is your car and, you know, like what, what's your job title and all these things that I think at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter that much because I've met loads and loads of people, especially in banking that are worth lots and lots of money and they're utterly miserable with their lives. And then they don't add any value to anything. They just sort of move stuff around. Um, and for me, that kind of defeats the purpose. So yeah, are they rich and can do other people consider them successful? Yes. But do I consider them a success? I'm not sure about that. So what is, what is then a success of giving value? Yeah, adding some value to mm. the world, whatever you do. So, mm. you know, for example, so one of the, you know, I, that's why I didn't like banking, right? Because you'd you'd do a bunch of work and they would probably not, all you do is moving stuff around, right? Yeah. Even if the work that you did, and sometimes it, most of the time it didn't get used. So you're like, well, what difference am I really making? And, yeah, they're paying you a lot of money for this for some reason, but it didn't feel like, uh, well, they only pay you a lot of money because people pay a lot of money for this service, but I was never convinced, but on a net basis, right? It's like asset management is a classic example. People pay a lot of money to people to make them money, but the amount of total money there doesn't change. You're really just paying somebody else to gather more of it for you than the other guy. So if you're an asset management to me, that never felt particularly value add all you're doing is moving stuff around and you're getting paid very well by the people you move it to but are you necessarily making the world a better place i'm not sure so for me that's not success whereas from success for me is on a personal level experiencing all these things and understanding relating to people in the world around me and career-wise it's about creating something new or creating a product or something that helps people in some way whether it's to achieve a dream or to just feel a little bit better every day or to save five minutes a day or, or whatever it is that adds some small value to people's lives then i know that i've made a positive difference to the world so so that, that's you know that's one man's perspective and yeah. everybody has a different view but i i feel pretty happy with that philosophy i think one thing is for sure james you have given loads of value today <laughs> uh, uh, yes. uh, this conversation has been ex extremely good now I had, uh, have had 12 episodes in Norwegian <clears throat> and by my personal feeling is that this has given me a, a lot because you have done some extreme things and the other 
people I've talked to in Norwegian, they have also done extremely special things. But you've given some extreme value here because, like you said, success for you is giving value. And you're now delivering your experience, your history and your feelings to to lots of people. And I could just say one thing, James, is that your your book, you used six years to write it. It's so great. Yeah, it took me six, six years. Yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was a two-year gap, and then it took me four years to write it while I was going along. But yeah. and, it, and it's called From North to South. Uh, yeah, North to South. Yeah, a man, a bear, and a bicycle. And you can find it on Amazon. It's an incredible, it's on Amazon, yeah. it can, it's an incredible book. I, I loved it. And in, in this book, you, you deliver the message and your history. And so in such a good way uh, I sh- we should think that you're an author because when I, re- when I read the book I can see the picture I can see the picture of this bear eating this flower I can see this picture of this tree falling down on the house so you're painting this picture extremely good with words so read this book please read this book But oh, thanks mate you're, 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 far, you're far too kind but uh, thank you thank you it's nothing about kindness. It's just honesty. <laughs> and I believe in honesty, James. And I didn't say this uh, in the in the intro of, uh, of this uh, podcast, is that this is our first international episode. So the people listening now, you can find it on the Mind Coach on, uh, on iTunes. For the Norwegian listeners, it's Mentalte in the podcast on iTunes. You can also see this uh, episode with pictures from uh, James' experiences on YouTube on nomorefear.no. And if you like this episode, please review it on iTunes. That was the end, James. I thank you so much for this time. It has been incredible and extremely inspiring. And I hope to speak to you soon uh, or uh, soon or again. Because you're giving so much value. And I understand why I saw you speaking at the conference in Bergen. I also ex- understand why they get you to have this uh, speak at Stanford. Because with your experiences, these incredible experiences, you give so great value and inspiration for others. So I wish you best of luck in your entrepreneurship. Oh, th- th- thanks so much, Frank. And uh, it's a uh, it's a real pleasure to talk to you as well and uh, yeah I hope I've uh, you know, entertained and then added a few little things and um, yeah I mean I, I guess the closing remark is really that you know I don't think I'm special in any way I think anything that I've done I think anybody can do um, I've just been fortunate enough and maybe crazy enough to just sort of step out the door and, and try these things so yeah no, it's, uh, it's I've been very lucky so far but I think everybody listening should should really be aware that it's um, anything really is possible and hopefully add a, a little bit of uh, evidence to that but no i've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you and uh, you're as inspiring to me as uh, as anybody it's really great thank you for that james but where can people find you can they find or contact you or where can uh, they yeah, follow you? Uh, I'm, I'm i'm on facebook uh, i'm on twitter as well as, as james Bruman. thank you so much james i'm looking forward to seeing you again great thanks frank bye-bye